Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. A little under the weather, so you might be able to tell, mm-hmm. but I'm here to rasp my way through a few film reviews with my charming, scintillating, and far healthier co-host, oh. William, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for The Rap. I write for Slash Film. And everybody calls me Pop It, Lock It, Polka Dot It, Country Five and Hip Hop Hit, but your hawk in the sky moves <laughs> side to side, jump to the left, <laughs> stick it, glide. Nobody calls you that. Nobody, well, it's, it's, it's a bit long-winded. Everyone shortens it to just bibs. Fair, all right. Yeah. Oh, is that what it, that, <laughs> that's what it's short, short for. for? That's what it's short for. People <laughs> think it's for the last name. Total coincidence that those are similar. What are we reviewing this week? This Liv? week, uncritically claimed, you're reviewing uh, the new releases, Poor Things, Origin, The Boy and the Heron, and Merry Little Batman. And also, you wanted to talk about uh, a... a it's an, in, an internet phenomenon. Mm-hmm. A the, new cinematic out there. A yeah. new cinematic movement, if mm. you will, uh, that you it, it's it's not new, but it, it was new, new. To, it was new to Whitney, and it's new to it's, a lot of people. It's new this year. Yeah, uh, it debuted in February, and mm. it is actually one of the most watched filmed. It's it's animated animated phenomena out mm. there. Yeah, uh, I'm going to talk about Skibbity Toilet. Skibbity uh, Toilet. If uh, some of you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, the rest of you have kids. Uh, there's Because Skibbity Toilet is sweeping through kids' entertainment right now. And it's not for kids, but mm. kids are latching onto it. Oh. I think it's really scary and disturbing, mm. but I'm learning how much scary and disturbing shit kids are growing up with yeah. in their media and how it's just sort of ridiculous and fun for them yeah i'm sure our parents felt the same way about some of the things we watched yeah uh but there is a lot to unpack with skibbity toilet and i'll I'll walk everybody through it we will save that we will save that for the end of the episode that will be our dessert Mm -hmm. that will be our delicious sheet cake i almost completely whiffed the word delicious because (laughs) i was gonna add a word after it uh but by god i managed to pull it through at the last minute uh let's talk about we always start with um we try to start with like the big release the movie that most people are likely highest profile well again if if not everyone gets to see all the movies every week that we Mm. do so the one that the most people are likely to have seen yes and are perhaps listening just to hear about this movie that they've seen. Which is, this is one of the reasons why, even though we actually see quite a few movies before they come out, we don't like to review movies before they've come out because we want people to have had an opportunity to watch them for themselves. And then you can, you know, we, mm-hmm. we try to help people follow along with the movie if they haven't seen it. But if you have, it will be all the clearer. Yes. So give you an opportunity to see them for yourselves. And uh, this week... The number one movie in the United States of America was Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. Awesome. (laughs) Well done, everybody. In the top three movies at the box office, two were international features. One was uh, The Boy and the Heron, and one was Godzilla Minus One. That's right. That is fucking great. And when we, uh, we, yeah. we, we're talking about, like, oh, what's gonna, what are people going to watch when they stop watching superhero movies? Apparently a lot of different stuff from yeah. all over it, and all different genres and mediums. Um, 
this is a year we we turned a corner. Yeah. Uh, we're, there's a lot that's behind us now. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of the sort of mold of... The strike, I think, was maybe the the final blow uh, mm-hmm. of, of something that was already fading out. Yeah, it, it just, and, it just uh, put a pause on everything, and it felt mm-hmm. like a hard reset. Yeah, so yeah. A, a lot of the, the you know, that sort of Star Wars Marvel molds that we were stuck in for yeah. better part of 15 years... Yeah, I would argue uh, as, since the early 2000s, ever since Spider-Man, yeah, I guess basically, so. um, like, really blew the lid off of turning superheroes into a four-quadrant thing. Mm-hmm. Just that level of pop culture recognizability was what, you, I would, you know, I'd even throw in some, like, Transformers. I don't think you'd get Transformers on no, that scale true. without stuff like Spider-Man blowing up. Yeah, so, so. The, the whole idea of this, um, these kinds of gigantic fantasy effects-based blockbusters. Those things will, will always exist, of course. Oh, yeah. But always I have like, as well. I feel like this entire um, geek-adjacent journalistic ecosystem sort of like mushrooms thrived in the shade of these gigantic mm. blockbusters. Yeah. And uh, those blockbusters, like, those trees have now fallen. Eh, we're, there's a few. There's a few left. Mario did very well. I suppose so, but we're, yeah. like, heading out of those woods, and the, the, yeah. the trees are getting further apart. And, and one could even argue that Mario feels like a movement into, like, hey, you know what the kids today actually like? Mm. Video games more than movies. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> maybe move into that zone. Yeah. So, uh, what, what we're moving into into uh and you can see this happening right away like the ecosystem that thrived on those uh blockbusters Mm. and you can see this on youtube all of these like really salacious banners you'd see on youtube like here's why the marvels fail that yeah that kind of stuff like some of those guys are already making videos about like the zone of interest and and <laughs> May and May December like these wow. really kind of like art house really, films like these really kind of mature art house movies mm-hmm. are already like rushing in to fill those voids. They're more interesting to talk about. Yeah, let's yeah. be honest. They, well, here, they know? always have been. Well, but what I love seeing is this really curious uh, late stage geekery. I guess like the yeah. geek culture kind of collapsing in on itself. Mm. Uh, and trying to get the same nourishment from something like the Zone of Interest, yeah. instead of Transformers Eight. Yeah, and we'll talk about that. I think mm. next week. I think, I think Zone of Interest is coming out next week. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that we bring this up in the context of the Boy and the Heron because the Boy and the Heron, though it is uh, a Japanese film, mm. uh, the films of Hayao Miyazaki, which, by the way, in like the eighties and nineties, were not readily available in America the way they are no, now. No, I was they were hard to, see to them find. They because, had shitty uh, dubs. The the original English language dub of My Neighbor Totoro uh, is a crime. It is a crime <laughs> against you can find cinema. A, you can find it in an old like clamshell VHS. It was That's released by Trauma. Dub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one uh, else cared. I had a roommate in college who was uh, president of the anime club, so he actually mm. had like uh, Castle in the Sky and things mm-hmm. ahead of time before they were released by Disney. Disney ended up uh, yeah. getting the distribution rights to Miyazaki's, yeah. uh, the whole studio, Studio Ghibli's uh, catalog. In the early 2000s, around mm. the time Spirited Away came out. Yeah, uh, and they Princess get... Mononoke was like the big sort of tipping point for that because mm. uh, Miramax mm. actually acquired that and they got Neil Gaiman to write the American uh, dub. Yeah. Uh, which is mostly great. He changed like two plot points that I I completely changed the context of the movie. I don't know why <laughs> he did that. He turned uh, the character at the beginning, who was the main character, Ashitaka's fiance, into his sister. Mm-hmm. So when he compares the title character, Princess Mononoke, to that girl from the beginning of the movie, whole context of the relationship so changes in the American different, version. Know, yeah. yeah, very, very different. Odd choice, but... That's because Neil Gaiman is a hack. <laughs> <laughs> But Princess Mononoke was a big fucking deal, and a lot. Yeah, of, I, oh, I saw yeah. the movie like four times in theaters, <laughs> and 
that sort of made people realize, oh, there's a big market for this. And then Spirited Cer- Away became a huge juggernaut. Pre- and prestige anime became a yeah. thing after all. Because anime was more of a cult phenomenon. Yeah. In, in the United States, it was sort of like off to the side. Uh, the, it was kind of hard to get to. It was really expensive. The few uh, big releases that we had tended to be more for the like adult-themed sci-fi market, like Akira or yeah. Vampire Hunter D. Right, and right. There were the TV series as well, but I'm talking about the movie environment. Yeah, there weren't that many big releases. Combination, uh, there was Princess Mononoke in theaters, and there was Pokemon on TV. So yeah. It just sort of infiltrated after but, but, that. But um, anime had been on American TV since like the, the, well, since the, the 60s. 60s. The 60s, yeah, technically. Gigantor but, and Speed Racer. Yeah, like but by the 80s, we were starting to import a lot more Battle of the Planets and yeah, like, you know, Robotech. Robotech. Yeah. Oh, God, it grew the. Oh, God. Robotech was my jam. <laughs> Robotech was my Star Wars way more than Star uh, Wars was my Star Wars. So yeah, I, I was familiar with all of this stuff. I never got like into like it was never part of like the anime cult. I didn't go yeah. to the shops and get the videos, but I, I was familiar with a lot of this stuff. Uh, and I was familiar with Hayao Miyazaki, and I understood that uh, he, rightly so he's celebrated as one of the masters of the craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a very humane filmmaker. He deals with fantasy most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, his last film, uh, The Wind Rises, was not a fantasy film. It was a biography. Um, yeah. It's a biopic of the guy who invented the uh, Zero Fighter, yeah, uh, which was used in World War II. And it's all about how the the actual creation of this thing is, this is a beautiful piece of machinery. It's an incredible achievement. And it was used for yeah. horror. Being a good flip side to Oppenheimer, frankly. As but, it um, would, yeah. yeah. Uh, and... He and Miyazaki has said multiple times he's in he's in his mid seventies now I believe and uh, he has said multiple times that he's going to retire yeah he's, he's made his final film and he's backing off I, I, making I think films. he said that was Spirited Away yeah Spirited Away was going to yeah. be his last one that one came out in two thousand one he's made exactly. several films since then yeah uh, I still think Spirited Away uh, and The Wind Rises mm. are like the finest of his work mm. uh, Spirited Away is really really great there, Spirited, it, it, yeah you can throw a rock. And hit a great I suppose so, but, but Kiki, even, Kiki's delivery service is uh, amazing. My neighbor Totoro is amazing. Those are my top. Uh, those and Princess Mononoke and are my top Mononoke, three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but, I'm very fond of uh, an early spy film he did called The Castle of Cagliostro. Mm-hmm. That's a really good one. The the do you know? Do you ever like read up on the production of Castle of Cagliostro? Because The Castle of Cagliostro was actually an incredibly influential film. Uh, mm-hmm. It influenced a lot of American animators in particular. You'll see homages to it as early as something like The Great Mouse Detective, which is only a few years yeah. later. Uh, it was it's. It was made in like six months from conception <laughs> to release, which is unheard of in animation. In animation, yeah. that's nuts. Like seriously, like it, within the year, it was conceived, written, storyboarded, animated, recorded, did the score, and then mm. released. Yeah, and it's one of the best animated movies ever made. <laughs> one of the best and most influential. Holy shit! It's really, really fun. It's really yeah. funny. It's got a lot of slapstick. Uh, yeah. It, it's it's like um, just really lighthearted James Bond adventure. It's a really really yeah. fun movie. Which is funny because uh, the actual character that it's based because that's actually an entry in a long running franchise called Lupin yeah, the Third. Lupin the Third. Yeah. That franchise is actually pretty dark a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Miyazaki's film is actually kind of a a weird, Whim- weirdly whimsical for that character. Yeah, some yeah. Pe- some people don't like it for that reason because they just love all the other stuff so mm-hmm. much. But. Yeah. Whatever. But uh, his, yeah. his latest film was originally called How Do You Live? Uh, mm-hmm. That's the Japanese title. And How Do You Live is a real Japanese novel that the character in the movie reads. Mm. But this is not an adaptation of that novel. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was looking up the novel. I was like, oh, that's actually a really interesting story. The like novel is, yeah, like, the novel is like a young child who 
tries to bond with his uncle, I believe. I, I mm. would have to look it up again. Uh, that, but, uh, that would probably be considering... I like this movie. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit this right now. I watched this movie when I was very tired. Okay. And I'm worried that there might be levels to it that I missed. So I'm actually yeah. going to like hold back on a lot of my observations here because I want to see this movie again. Okay. And give it my, you know, it, it had my full attention. I was just not the, cogent. Yeah, right. So, so uh, we do, we're critics. We do what we can. Yeah. I, you know, so, sometimes we have to see things under duress. So like I wanted to see it in time for this episode. I wasn't able to see it under their ideal conditions. And uh, while I liked it, uh, I, I don't feel like I got as much out of it. And honestly, I'm starting to wonder, you know, I, I just did an interview a few weeks ago with uh, the director of Suzumi, mm. which is another anime uh, film that came out this year, a big blockbuster uh, in Japan. Uh, and I talked about, you know, how there are things that get lost in translation. And one of the things was just like The Boy and the Hair and Slash How Do You Live, mm. they changed the title. Yeah, And, you know, I don't have all that context and not, mm. neither do a lot of Americans. Yeah. And... On one hand, we're missing stuff. On the other hand, he argued that that specificity is what made the film special, mm-hmm. as opposed to a film that is made for everyone to be able to disseminate and enjoy equally, and no one has that specificity, yeah. which is an interesting point. So, uh, for people who read that book, how do you know? Or how do you live? How Sorry. Do you live, yeah. uh, it sounds like, considering just the little <coughs> you told me, it's like, oh, that's thematically oh. connected to the events of this film, because there's a lot of well, shit with the, an uncle and shit. There's some stuff with an uncle. I, I think in the book, uh, How Do You Live is posited to the by by the uncle to the young protagonist. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you going to live your life? How do you live? It's, you know, uh, choosing your own path. Uh, it's difficult to see how that plays into the themes of The Boy and the Heron, mm. because The Boy and the Heron is a fairy tale, Mm. It's very Alice in Wonderland. It takes a lot of different fairy tales. It takes place during um, World War II. It feels so, like a, got kind of a Chronicles of Narnia Chronicles vibe. of Narnia, yeah. There's like a lot of bits and pieces like of influence of a lot of fairy tales and other fantasy pictures. I felt, also saw a lot of Pan's Labyrinth in mm-hmm. here. Um, and it doesn't really... And this is by design. Mm. Doesn't explain its own rules. Not very it, well. It's no. really kind of this miasma. I'm glad a lot you of said fantasy. That, I was worried that was something no, I missed. No, this, this okay. is actually. I think this is the way Miyazaki made the film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's about a young boy. He's about fourteen, mm-hmm. uh, and he has lost his mother in the war. Uh, yeah. And there's this really harrowing opening sequence sequence mm-hmm. where he pictures his mother burning up. Yeah. Uh, and he's gone to live with his stepmother, who is also his aunt. His, yeah, his, his dad his has dad married his, his, his dead wife's sister. Married his aunt, so now yeah. and and is, is having a, a child weird. with her. Yeah, it was a little uh, weird for the kid. You know, and, he's, and he's, the dad is is a titan of industry, making money off of the war effort. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a scene in the movie where he has to have a lot like uh, glass cockpit covers are being kept yeah. on his this like country estate where yeah. they're staying. He, at some level, he's involved in the aviation industry. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's a Hayao Miyazaki film. There's got to be some flying in it. Yeah. Uh, there's gonna be flying, there's gonna be birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we finally met the birds that Miyazaki hates. Cause, <laughs> cause there, there's like all these monster parakeets in this movie, but yeah. well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, so, uh, he is, com- this boy is completely mm-hmm. miserable. Uh, and he's living, he, he goes, he's been moved to like his mom's old estate, like where she grew up. Yeah. And where his aunt slash stepmother yeah. and he, now yeah, lives. He goes yeah. there and he's unhappy to be there. There's, uh, seven little biddies who live there like, like seven old, old ladies women, old yeah. ladies are like poking through I his, love uh, that his li- yeah the, those are great characters they're really broadly mm-hmm. designed uh, and they're you know this is post-war so it's like oh you have tobacco or you have chocolate or you have sugar like things that are really rare for them and they get really excited about mm-hmm. that 
Uh, and there's a heron on the estate. Mm. It just sort of flies around. Big, if you don't know what a heron is, hair. it's a big it's, lanky bird. It's got long legs. Mm. It's got a really long neck and a very pronounced uh, snout. Uh, during COVID, um, oh, we, right. you had a heron. we had a heron. <laughs> so I we I lived, um, eh, you know, without traffic, a, a ten minute drive from the ocean. It's not very far, uh, and. We had in our uh, foyer, in our, you know, sort of in the center of the apartment complex, um, a, a fish pond. And during COVID, when the early days, when no one was on the streets at all, it was dead. It was like, I am legend in Los Angeles. It was fucking weird. Uh, <laughs> the things, air was clean. The air was so clean. <laughs> it was really it was incredible. But the kind of uh, reminded you how beautiful Los Angeles can be. I know, but th- it was so calm that the animals started to take back the city a little bit. Yeah, we and saw a, like coyotes and raccoons, yeah. and, and a heron decided to start living on our roof, and just that was the fish pond that he ate from. Mm. And this heron, this was a big fuck. It was a dinosaur. Yeah, it's like, a I, know, gi- I know it's, it's a, a big bird, yeah. but it's like it's giant. It's way too fucking big. <laughs> and you and I, you saw it. You and I saw it the very first time. Mm. You were walking out. Of my apartment, hmm. and you saw like what is that? There was like some weird lump uh-huh. on the roof, and we're like, yeah, what the fuck is that? And then it like unfurled its <laughs> neck. We're like, oh shit, that's a, a huge a fucking heron, gigantic bird on the roof. Oh my god! And like and one time, it like f- it like flew up towards me, and I heard its wings flap like like loud. <laughs> like I thought that was just a noise they made in movies. It felt really fucking loud. <laughs> oh god, herons are magical creatures, yeah. and Hayamizaki apparently agrees. Although he turns the heron into Danny DeVito, which is a little weird. Yeah. Um, the the heron keeps on staring at this boy, mm. like through the window, and he's com- increasingly miserable. The boy, not uh, the, the boy heron. is. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, he he gets picked on at school. He doesn't want to go back, and he smashes his own head with a rock. Just so he doesn't have to go back to school. Just so he doesn't go back to school, and he bleeds and leaves a scar on his head. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just really terrible, and after that that's when things go a little weird so you can maybe interpret this as some sort of hallucination or madness or brain injury um but the heron has human teeth Mm -hmm. and it also goes over to this abandoned part of the estate this old building that's been sealed off yeah. yeah it's got like creepy old wizard tower almost uh and it begins speaking to him the heron and it Telling him it's, about his dead mother and how she's not really dead. Yeah, your your dead mother isn't really dead, and you just come into the Forbidden Tower, and there's like we can mm. you can find her there, and it, it, like at the fate the mouth of the heron opens, and this like little bald guy's head with this gigantic warty nose, like like, like, pops like he's out. wearing a heron suit. Yeah, like, it's really fucking creepy. And while he's like tempting this little kid, like the like fucking Satan, mm. uh, his stepmother and all of like the little old ladies like run out, and his stepmother grabs a bow and like shoots at it from. Mm. Like across the fucking garden, and you're like, "What the fuck is going on?" Great moment, <laughs> great moment. So he eventually goes out to this tower. He finds mm-hmm. that his his stepmother is now essentially Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, uh, she's been and she's pregnant. So she yeah. and she's been uh, spirited off to another dimension. Mm-hmm. And say, "Well, you can come into this other dimension and go after her." And the, mm-hmm. into Wonderland he goes. Yeah, uh, literally falls just like Alice into like, Wonderland, yeah. and uh, like he sinks through the floor, and then he falls, and he lands in this other dimension. Yeah, uh, and this is a a dimension that's never really explained. Yeah. What it is exactly. We know that spirits of those who have yet to be born live there. Yep. There's 
birds there, but birds are very malevolent in this dimension. There's some uh, pelicans who eat those spirits. But there's also there's... sympathy for the pelicans, too, because yeah. they have to eat something. Yeah. And they have no other options. And so the boy like kind of mm. learns to pity them, even and though the, they're monsters. The boy meets this really awesome sailor. And she and like she's just a complete badass, and he yeah. finds out that she's actually the younger version of one of the old ladies that he left behind. Yeah. So she lived in this this kind of a like weird temporal nexus thing where there's time travel. Yeah. He meets other characters who are other figures from his life throughout history, but they're different ages. Yeah, like he meets a, a, a young girl who's his age, but turns out to be somebody else that he knows later in life. Yeah. Uh, and also, an army of evil fucking parakeets. Yeah, like six foot tall parakeets who just want to eat you. They like they like walk around and like behind their back, like their kids crossing <laughs> their fingers when they lie. They've got just like, like knives and things. And, and it's like, and then we're just gonna eat the child. And they're like, what is that? Is there something I don't know about parakeets? Because that's a very strong admonition of parakeets just in general yeah some kid who's never seen a parakeet is going to see this movie and go oh, i don't want to go anywhere near a fucking parakeet and uh, i was reminded of uh, something like um the never-ending story yeah which is uh, a film i know is quite deeply beloved it's the first film i remember hating um uh, because of the misleading a... title and uh, no it's I was, only like two hours long I, I was happy that it was over actually okay. i thought it was quite quite a bit too long okay uh i I, I can't really f- remember what it is I, I hated about it. Just there's something about it, like about the tone or the... Mm. I felt it, like even though I was five years old, I was like, you're condescending to me. You're trying, <laughs> trying to get me to care about these fantasy things. This is fantastical fun, right? No? Oh. oh it's you're very tra- dour. You're, tra- you're trying to be very edgy, aren't you? There's and a I'm, scene... And I'm five. There's a scene uh, where a horse dies because mm. it gets depressed. Like if yeah. you walk through this bog and you get depressed, you sink, sink into the, the bog, bog and, and you die. die. Yeah. And it happens to the horse. And I'm like, what is the horse sad about? about? What is what? What is? <laughs> I want to know so bad. But there, there's this kind of uh, almost picaresque quality about this, and yeah. I'm going to use the word picaresque again because we're going to be going to be talking about poor things. But mm. uh, one second, I'm going to look up the word picaresque. A, a, a way of uh, saying like an episodic adventure. There's little uh, tiny bits throughout. I was kidding, but yeah. Okay, I think I think our listeners are sophisticated well, enough to know. You know what? Uh, Everyone has to learn a word for the first time once. I suppose so. So even if it's one person uh, who is just like picaresque, do I know that uh, one? Pe- Boom! A episodic a picaresque narrative. Is Gulliver's Travels is an example. Is a pe- the, exactly goes from this place to this place uh, to this place. And so uh, he he's trying to find his stepmother, who's like hidden somewhere in the depths of this dimension. He's taken from place to place. There's portals that lead back to his own dimension, but he has to stay here. Uh, eventually we're introduced to sort of like the lord of the dimension and sort of the rules and the lord of the parakeets all the rules are confusing the or rules, I'm really tired the rules are either tired from other <clears throat> fairy tales mm. or they're brought up at the last minute like all these things okay. that kind of so change the so maybe I did fa- get this movie so and I was just it was just being obtuse it's, it, it is it's very it's, okay, it's well, very obtuse well, uh, the, okay. the fact that's that it's like my okay, low self esteem talking you, you need to do this thing to save the universe that wasn't an issue before no we didn't know what those things were before this moment I feel like he's constantly and, uh, being judged on criteria that is never explained to him yeah, yeah like oh if you do character. this this way Oh, but then you didn't do it. That means you passed my test. But what does that signify? Yeah, it's like, and you pass through here. And, <laughs> oh, wait, now we're in this weird, eerie place where we vanish at the end of this hallway. Okay. I mean, this is visually kind of cool, but yeah. I, I'm not really sure 
like where we're supposed to be feeling here. Are we supposed to be a little lost? Yeah. Is he really comfortable with all this? Is okay. he really astonished by You're what making he's me saying? feel so much better because okay. I thought I was just too tired to get it. No, I, I feel like Miyazaki likes to tell a certain kind of... Fa- he likes to tell fairy tales this way. He does. Where the rules aren't spelled out. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rules aren't always important. Not always. Like the rules of My Neighbor Totoro largely irrelevant. No, no, no. The rules of Kiki's delivery service pretty minimal. There's just a few mm. things you need to know about witches in flight and like that's it. Yeah. And then everything yeah. else is just fine. The the curse in Porco Rosso is barely explained. <laughs> like it's just but, an excuse uh, to get us where we need to go. But in something like Howl's Moving Castle, mm. it pulls a lot of various and uh, various uh, fairy tales and stories. Yeah. It's based on a book, but it's also based on like the Baba Yaga myth. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in something like Howl's Moving Castle. It doesn't always make a lot of sense. Howl is a bird part of the time, and he's mm-hmm. fighting in a war that we're never explained. Not very well, no. uh And I feel the same way about this one, that he's he likes to... He's so enamored of living in this fantasy universe that he forgot to stop and say, wait, let's right. bring people in as to, well. To, walk, to guide us, to, to give us a guide. Yeah. What this movie doesn't have that so many other fantasy stories would... And you could argue that it's lazy screenwriting, you could argue that it is really vitally functional... Is <coughs> bless you a guide? Yeah. Theoretically, well, the her- he, he, theoretically the heron is uh, his guide because he ends up like spending a lot of time with the heron. Uh, not a particularly helpful guide when it comes to exposition. The idea of like you know just having someone there to explain things to you uh-huh. can be tedious if you overdo it. But sometimes we just need to know stuff. And in the case of the boy and heron, he's clearly choosing. Not to give us that, and to let us feel as that I'm so glad that I, I'm not crazy. Like it, <laughs> it, he's he's deciding to throw us in the deep end yeah. without teaching us how to swim, mm. and we will either sink into this swimming pool and we'll die going well. It's a pretty swimming pool, or we'll figure out how to swim by the end of it. Yeah, um, it's a it's a fascinating watch. It is certainly gorgeously animated. Oh, yeah. uh, Joe Hisaishi, I think, is one of the great composers, and no mm. one will convince me otherwise. Um, like, up there with John Williams. Like, that's how great I think he is. Um, it's it's just handsomely realized. But yeah, I, I, I left... I It was a little obtuse for my tastes. And I'm, and I'm yeah. okay with obtuse, but there's something about it. I'm like, I just feel like there's a key card that I'm missing, like a, tr- yeah. like a well, glossary or something I, that I just I didn't think... get access to. And maybe, and again, maybe on multiple viewings, I'll when I'm more familiar with the world, it'll mm. be more clear. Uh, although that's that, that. that's very awfully demanding of the audience, though, to expect them to sort of come back and relive that same experience over and over. On the other I hand, think, is it uh, really that bad to be demanding of an audience? No, I mean, I, absolutely, you know. absolutely not. But uh, I think one of the the big errors in the Boy and the Heron, which is a good film, by the way, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, dazzling and astonishing, and I love the animation, and I love just sort of the the little emotional beats that we get throughout. Did you see the, the main uh, character? Hang on a second. Sorry. The main character is where we're sort of. Mm. lacking he's he's really kind of unhappy mm-hmm. uh very clearly suffering through a lot of trauma with his mother mm-hmm. trying to come to terms with his new family dynamic mm. when he enters this new fantasy world his attitudes don't change mm. he doesn't seem astonished to be there he doesn't seem to uh be off balance when he first enters he just sort of knows that he's on a quest mm. and he becomes another character in the fairy tale Rather than being the audience outsider that we're supposed to sort of sink ourselves into with. Yeah. I feel like even Hell's Moving Castle had that. This uh, young girl was turned into an old woman. Mm-hmm. 
And she was constantly talking about how weird it was to be an old woman and how strange it was to, to be in these circumstances. Yeah, he's weirdly just kind of just jumps He's just right really, in. yeah, it's yeah. like, it feels he's so used to it yeah. that, you know, he doesn't know the rules of this place, so he, like, violates a couple of rules, but he's just sort of steely and determined. And that's a really uninteresting character trait. Yeah. Did, I was going to ask, did you see the uh, American dub or did you see the subtitle version? I saw the American dub. That's interesting, because so. I saw the subtitle version. Oh, okay. Uh, how is the dub? Because honestly, they it used to be that all American dubs sucked, except for Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> Everyone agreed all American dubs sucked, except for Cowboy Bebop. Lately, it's gotten better. They've taken a lot more care, and this, I think well, a big that's... part of this was when Disney mm-hmm. and Princess Mononoke, uh, they they started like making sure that they had excellent casts yeah, and this was, really um, took care to make sure they're giving great performances and not just like throw it out there. Yeah, we can credit that too. He's a creep, but John Lasseter came yeah. up with that. Um, uh, and yeah, they do it this. They brought back some uh, uh, Miyazaki repertory players hmm. for the English language dub because uh, Christian Bale is back. He played Howl in Howl's okay. Moving Castle. Does he play um, the dad? Or the... He, he plays the dad. Okay. Uh I didn't recognize him, but I saw his name in the credits. But Dan Stevens is in there. He plays the parakeets. Does he play the parakeets? Apparently, he plays okay. the parakeets. I didn't see that done. Oh, right. yeah. I read he played the parakeets. All right. And then is it, and he, is it Robert was, Pattinson plays the heron? Right. Robert Pattinson plays the heron. That's interesting. How does he? How does he? Do he, that? he does a voice. He like he kind, does of, a, kind of shrieks a little bit and kind of okay. Kind of Good for him. Because yeah. usually when you get like a big star like oh. Robert Pattinson, you want it to be as recognizable as yeah. possible. Good for him. No, he has like, no, I'm not you know, Aaron. Like, he's actually trying to do, give a yeah. voice performance. He's a good actor, that Robert Pattinson. I wish they just hire voice actors, but they got to sell it to an American audience yeah, so they get yeah. the big stars in there. Some of them are good voice actors, some of them aren't. It would be nice if it was more of like a half and half. You know, yeah. a couple of big stars to sell the tickets, but they don't need to get one but, for everybody. Yeah, There's a lot of great voice actors. Trust McNeil's there. right there. Yeah. <laughs> She'll do it. Yeah. I'm trying to think She's, of... She has 18 other jobs this week. She can yeah. fit in another. Like, you got... you got. Uh, uh, oh, my God. Who, who does the voices of, like, every animal? Oh, Frank Welker. Frank Welker. You got... Fr- Frank Welker <laughs> could have played those parakeets very, very easily. You could have, for, for simultaneously. Yeah. You've played many of them. Played every character and you'd never know. Mm. Um, I, I learned recently that uh, Frank Welker... He plays the voice... He played the voice of uh, Megatron. Yeah. On... Uh, on the old Transformers cartoon. Yeah. Well, one of 6,000 characters he's played. Yeah. And uh, he gave an interview saying that, you know, he has this kind of like, arr, arr, this kind of growly voice for, yeah. for Megatron. And he said he was actually at first trying to do a Barry White impersonation. <laughs> who, who, who loves you, baby? Yeah. Star scream! Like, this. <laughs> like it, it, it's sort of like mutated. It was partly, I, partly Barry White. I had no idea that's hilarious. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Anyway, The Boy and the Heron. Uh, it's an interesting film, um, and it's very, very beautiful, and if you get a chance to see it, I think you should. Yeah, de- definitely see it, I, but it, it's... I don't think it's our favorite Hayao Miyazaki right off no, the bat, no, at no, least. It's... I might stink up on us, though. Sometimes it happens with Hayao Miyazaki. It, it'll grow. It'll, yeah. It may grow. I, I didn't like Porco Rosso the first time I saw it, and mm. now I realize how brilliant it is. Right. So it, maybe it'll take me some time, and if, again, I plan to rewatch it, and maybe now, knowing more about how that world sort of unfolds, I'll pick up the pieces earlier, and it'll yeah, be it's, one of those rewarding multiple-watch films. Yeah. I do find it curious, though, that, you know, uh, Miyazaki has refused to retire. It's like, I want yeah. to keep on making these resist. things. He's just, he's an artist. He wants to create. Well, I want to create it, but it, I find it curious that this was the story he was drawn back to. Yeah. Like, you can see him kind of 
cooling off a little bit with something like The Wind Rises. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's held something More a little sober. Bit, yeah, yeah. It's, a, a very, it's a serious, it's a biographical drama, it's a historical drama, there's no fantasy elements to there's it. dream sequences. Some dream sequences. So you get but, to yeah, animate some of the fun stuff. I guess like so, I but you know... It, it, it is kind of odd. It's like, no, I got to do one more. And it's like just doing a, another Alice in Wonderland riff. That's I think that's a little reductive, but it does feel kind of familiar. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it feels like he's doing something safe rather than something really daring. Uh, again, maybe just hates parakeets. Maybe just, so. I just maybe want to do a hit point. piece against parakeets. I'm tired of them. Sick of them always. Look, look, I know everybody knows I like flight and birds and all the rest, but I yeah. want to put set something very, very clear on the record. Yeah. Fuck parakeets. <laughs> there was a Twitter thing that was going around today. So oh. was doing <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, picaresque mm. uh, uh, films, you already you already teased it. Uh, yeah. The latest film from Yorgos Lanthimos. That's right. Is in theaters. Uh, it is... It is. It's a. It's so weird to me that Yorgos Lanthimos became an awards darling director, because <laughs> like I kind of get like the favorite, because while it's strange, it is also a period piece, mm. very character driven. It's only a couple of moments of genuine wackiness, uh, and otherwise it's like just a very. Uh, uh, it's just a, a period piece with a lot of personality. Mm. Uh, but everything he does now, regardless of how fucking weird it is, everyone's like, well, that's going to be a Best Picture nominee. And I'm like, <laughs> poor things. I feel like if anyone else had done poor... If, like, Tarsem Singh had done poor things mm. 15 years ago, it would be this obscure, weird thing that barely got released. Yeah, yeah. And, and only was, only the uh, cool kids would be talking about it. I was thinking about Peter Greenaway a lot when I was yeah. watching Poor Things. Because uh, this, this feels like... Cook thief wife, the mm. cook thief his wife and her lover, or Z and two knot something that Peter Greenaway might have done in like yeah. the, the late eighties or early nineties. Um, this is uh, Candide mm. via Frankenstein. Yeah, more or less. Uh, Emma Stone plays a young woman who is being raised by uh, Doctor Godwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was played, played by, by Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. And he's all scarred up, and we. we learn over the course of the the movie that his father like did these really cruel medical experiments and tortured yeah. him it's like yeah my and, father uh here's a little one like mm-hmm. yeah my father uh, did did an experiment and he removed the the capacity of my body to create uh stomach acid just to see you know if you really needed it turns out you do <laughs> so he's got all these like vials and machines that he hooks up to his guts whenever he eats and yeah and he belches up these gigantic yeah. bubbles uh and yeah he's been raising uh what, what's the character's name? Oh, not, um, not Grace. No, um, no, 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 no. That's that's a little too on the nose. Oh, Bella, Bella Baxter. Bella, yeah, yeah. Bella, Bella, Bella yeah. Baxter. And yeah. uh, we learn, and she's very. She behaves very strangely. Very, We're introduced yeah. to this sort of uh, medical student who gets everything explained to him. He's he's uh, uh, he's in Willem Dafoe's like class at a medical school, mm-hmm. and he agrees to be his lab assistant and study this young woman, Bella Baxter, who has. I, I believe at the beginning of the movie, uh, Defoe's character says she has had some kind of brain injury, mm-hmm. and he's trying to like you know teach her you know how to talk again and how to you know uh, uh, do things simple things like eating. Mm-hmm. Um, what we discover, and this is very quick, this is like the, early in the movie. It's not mm-hmm. a spoiler. Uh, is that uh, in fact the very first shot? It's it's clear. Uh, she was another woman. She was not Bella Baxter, who threw herself off of a bridge, and died and she was nine months pregnant and she was pregnant and 
And this is so ghoulish to even discuss <laughs> that it's so fucking weird that it's weird that the movie doesn't find this more horrifying. Oh, no, but it's very matter of fact about it's, it. It's very but, much like, eh, and then I did what so I did. Yeah, he, but he, like, he, inst- he fished her body out of the Thames. And he could have revived her, but he thought that would be rude because she wanted to end her own life. And who was he to deny her that? So he brought her body back to life and he put the brain of her unborn child inside of her mother's body. <laughs> inside of her skull, yeah. And now, and now that's who we're not, now so, that's the protagonist of our movie. The that's a very weird idea. <laughs> so uh, the protagonist is somebody who is uh, an infant mm-hmm. with the body of an adult. Yeah. And uh, in the first part of the movie, for, uh, for the first third of this movie, I hated Emma Stone's performance. Oh yeah. The, just the the physicality was all wrong. Mm-hmm. The, she's so just sort of it's mannered for its own sake. Yeah, all like the she's time, just just know? being big and silly, and it's not giving the impact I think anybody yeah. thought it was going to. Yeah. Uh, but over the course of the film, we actually, as she grows up, and as essentially. Mm-hmm she learns about the world, mm. the film actually starts to mature and, and cohere. Yeah, she leaves the, um, She leaves home, she travels yeah, the world, she, she goes on a variety of experiences that there's a, a, mirror her, the, the evolution of a young mind to an adult. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, she, she falls in with this rakish rogue who's played by uh, Mark, Mark Ruffalo, Ruffalo yeah. g- giving a very uh, out-of-character performance. Like, mm. this is very more... quirky. He usually plays these kind of like really relaxed, kind of soulful characters. Yeah. Um, some of his first movies <laughs> I got to write about this recently uh, do you remember the horror film from 1990 called Mirror Mirror vaguely with uh, uh, what was the lead the lead actress was named Rainbow Harvest uh, and, yeah. uh, was he in that? he wasn't in Mirror Mirror he was in Mirror Mirror 2 nice colon Raven Dance <laughs> And That's awesome. uh, and he and he played this like weird sort of ghostly figure who's like oh it's like sort of this handsome guy. Yeah, I saw you dancing. It's like, oh, well, you're not supposed to be in here. Oh, I'm not really here. And somebody opens the door and he's gone. Like he's one of those kinds of characters. Oh my god. And then he's also in Mirror Mirror Three: colon, The Voyeur, playing a completely different character. Nice a guy named Joey, who's just like this handsome, rugged, moving guy. Oh my god. You can tell they were trying to sell Mark Ruffalo as like <laughs> super stud at the time. Yeah. And Mark Ruffalo, handsome guy. Very handsome guy. Very yeah, very, I feel like, like he low key sex symbol didn't come Mark into Ruffalo. his own until he like found his way into like the indie scene with like you can count you on can me. count on me it was, yeah, like, that was his, his breakout, breakout. yeah like, and he's he's a great actor I actually really mm. love Mark Ruffalo uh, he can be attracted to some weird fucking projects sometimes though and this yeah. is an interesting choice for him yeah because he plays like this Lothario yeah who is. like seduces her away from her like sheltered life and yeah, is no, gonna take her to see the world and he thinks he's gonna she's like she's an control infant her. but she has an adult body so she has like a really powerful sex drive and less yeah, like she... appetite for sense experience but she doesn't understand the context of it that mm. whole bit's fucking weird by the way I, best oh, yeah. not to think about that too much because <laughs> uh, it's it's very very strange um but what he discovers is that because she, he assumes that she's sheltered and has all of these uh, sort of conservative values as mm. a result. What he doesn't realize is that she has none of those fucking things. And she is an absolute free spirit. And very quickly, he realizes that she is not being controlled by him. She's actually be, He's actually being used by her mm. to get her experiences in the world. And she actually has no emotional connection. She hasn't fallen in love with him. Yeah. And it's like being like, and he's like, oh, whatever you do, don't fall in love with me like everybody does. And she's like, no problem. He's like, a little bit. Yeah, so, she and and this is where we kind of get the arc of where she goes. She yeah. uh, learns about sort of 
sensuality from this man. Mm -hmm. Uh, She runs, well, they're on a ship traveling Mm -hmm. together. They run into an old woman and her traveling companion, and Mm -hmm. they're both sort of a little bit cynical. Yeah, very intellectual types. And and so she actually, like, learns about, like, book learning and philosophy a little bit. And it's from these characters that she learns about misery in the world. Yeah. And how it's not just about sense experience and joy. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's make a good double feature with Inside Out. Uh, I think make a good movie with Barbie. A l- oh yeah, a little you know, bit. Here, I am I am innocent, and I'm curious about the outside world, and the outside world kind of lets me down, and it forces me to grow. Mm-hmm. And they're both very explicitly about feminism. By the second half of the movie, in particular, it's abundantly clear yeah, that where Bella is going is in a form of like self actualization that is very yeah. much ahead of the time period this is set in. Even though it's kind of a yeah, fantastical version of that time period. Uh, yeah, yeah, she ends up, uh, and part of her adventure, she ends up uh, work uh, getting a job as a sex worker yeah. in a French brothel and learns about uh, mm. using her own body in a way that she approves of and also learning about communism and politics mm. and she falls in love with another woman. Pe- people try uh, to shame her for that and she has a great line. Mm. It's like, no, we're our own means of production. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, uh and uh, when it finally reaches that point where it's like, oh, the, you're just doing Voltaire. This yeah. is this is Yorgos most telling this kind of fantastical version of a Voltaire story. Uh, I could have done with all of your goddamn insufferable steampunk bullshit that you were doing at There's the beginning of the movie. A lot of it just feels just, unnecessary. It didn't have to be set in this kind of Tim Burton whimsy world. Uh, that doesn't yeah. do anything to help the movie. I guess yeah. it maybe helps you accept the strangeness of the presence a little better if it's in a little bit of a heightened world. The, the premise is, uh, is really fucking bizarre and if you take it literally mm-hmm. as opposed to as a metaphor for someone who is innocent and sheltered discovering the world, yeah. if you take it literally which Yorgos Lanthimos wants us to do, he's got to present a world in which such things are possible. Yeah. I still don't think it was entirely necessary but no. he did it. Yeah. Um, it could have been less stylized, is my point. Mm-hmm. I feel like the it's style really in your the style doesn't do it too many favors. Uh, yeah. And but by the time we get to the end, it's like okay, we went on this wonderful journey. There's also a, a coda, like another episode at the yeah. end. And on, you think it's all over, and there's like a little bit there's more. The, yeah, then like, there's like oh, a little God. bit of a twist, yeah. and then there's like this other like 15 minute chunk of the movie where they yeah. kind of just repeat a lot of what they already went through. Yeah, and it feels and, like it's a little melodramatic for its yeah. own sake, a little bit. So all, all of that, all of that was like also it's, uh, yeah. it's like a little extra lump at the end that wasn't really necessary. But I oh. admired the the literary qualities of this movie yeah. the, the kind of philosophical qualities of this movie it's actually very thoughtful yeah. about uh the way the world commodifies women's bodies mm-hmm. the way it commodifies innocence yep. that's a big part of this movie yes, it is. uh and how um when presented with the world if we were to just just sort of come to our own conclusions about the world rather than deal with the hassle of being raised in it. Yeah. Uh, we would probably come to a lot more pragmatic, open conclusions about freedom and, uh, and yeah. agency and peace and getting along. Like we mm-hmm. our it is our instinct to make the world a better place, yeah. which makes it really out of character for Yorgos Lanthimos, yeah. who is very typically an incredibly cynical filmmaker, True. Uh, who actually has very negative views of human impulses mm-hmm. and instincts. Look at something like The Lobster. Falling in love oh, is a God. commodity it's, in that it's, movie. It's, it's so bitter uh, it annoyed me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or uh, did you see Killing of a Sacred Deer? I did. At least, that was at least a horror movie. Though. Yeah. I think that one earned its cynicism, but yeah, I, I love that fucking movie, actually. Yeah. The movie's great. <laughs> Barry, so that was, that was out my introduction of Barry Keoghan. So it's weird it's, that uh, he would he would choose to make uh, what what's the subtitle of Candide? It's optimism. Yeah. He made an optimistic picture, and that's really 
strangely out of character for him. But it's the best, I think it's the better kind of optimism, because it's not optimism that springs from naivete or mm. assumptions about the world that are easily disproven. It's, it's the world is full of shit. Yeah. And optimism can get us through, like strength of character mm. and having principles and uh, not letting uh, bad people define your life. Uh, these are all, I mean, they're somewhat general topics, but they're explored in, I think, very specific ways. There's um, there's something I've said before, I think, where it's like, I admire this movie more than I like it. Uh -huh. You know, where he's like, I can appreciate what a towering achievement this is, like technically or whatever, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it just didn't move me. I think I like this movie more than I admire it. <laughs> I think the the level of technical craft that they threw into this and the production design and the costuming and the visual effects. I I think you're right. I think to a little to not a not a damning extent, but to some extent just get in the way of the things I like about it, mm -hmm. which is the character journey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think Emma Stone it's an it's an odd performance by definition and at first i agree i thought it was eccentric for its own sake mm. i still think it kind of is at the beginning but it, it's about the character evolving from yeah you know bar barely conscious to mm. a, a truly mature independent free-thinking person and so i guess they made a specific choice to take us from that early point um it's an excellent movie. It's it's not my favorite Lanthimos. It's not mm. my favorite Lanthimos, but it is an excellent movie, and uh, I think uh, it's certainly worth checking out. And I think it is. I think it is the uh, the ultimate double feature with Barbie. I think they're just going to really <laughs> well, complement each uh, other really I, well. I appreciate that something this odd is getting you know awards mm. attention. I, yeah. I always appreciate Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, what I admire most about it is yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's ideas and it's yeah. thoughts and it's mm. conversation. Like actually has conversations. About mm. philosophy and about you know approaching life throughout the movie from with all these yeah. different characters, uh, movies in, in a way that feels like organic yeah. and and mature and the kinds of ideas you would run into mm. along your life journey. Yeah, uh, I, I liked all of that. Stuff. Movies where people talk about meaningful things. Yeah, it's something that American filmmakers or the American film industry, at least, uh, hasn't been great at for a really long time. And oh, I golly, think, no. and you know, you can you can talk about the the th the way that the the I think there are ways in which Barbie did drop the ball, mm -hmm. but I think it's one of the few films that tried to play ball. I tried, yeah. You know, and I, and I think it does, I think what it does, it does pretty yeah. admirably, and what it, you know, it doesn't do well, it doesn't sink it, it's just, they bit off a lot for mm -hmm. a movie about Barbie, and I think I admire them for it, and I think Poor Things does the same thing, it's trying to have actually, it's not all subtle under the surface implied themes as we're going to really discuss what we're what we're here for and i think that is an excellent segue to uh the next one we're going to be talking about which is ava duvernay's origin oh god which is a very didactic experience for better and i think for worse okay um uh... yeah I've heard people you, you use the word didactic, and I've heard a lot of people call this film didactic. Uh, it's it's a polemical kind of a movie. It it, yeah. it says its themes out loud directly to you repeatedly, like a lecture. It's more uh, about an idea than it is about the plot. Yeah, and so and, a lot uh, of it's going to be spent conveying that idea and helping you reach the same conclusion mm -hmm. as its protagonist. Yeah. Uh, recall, however, that you know you go to films. Uh, one of the functions of films is to inform. Sure. And I think having a uh, uh, a watchable, entertaining, f didactic film mm -hmm. is no blow against it. 
Oh yeah, uh, certainly in concept, I agree. Yeah. You know, I think that there's there, there's absolutely room to have all different kinds of movies mm. with all different kinds of purposes and functionalities, and they don't all need to function the exact same way. And this particular movie, which is it's an interesting concept for a film for an adaptation, uh, because it is about. Sensibly, it's about the movie Cast, C-A-S-T-E, mm. uh, The Origins of Our Discontents. The, the book. Yeah, which is a book. It was a bestseller. came out a few years ago, and it was by an author named Isabel Wilkerson. And that book was discussing the complexities of what often gets sort of lumped into the singular umbrella of racism, mm. and how what we call racism is sometimes racism, but it's sometimes uh, endemic of larger social systems of which racism global, is yeah. which, of which racism is merely a factor and that there are other more complicated and nuanced mm. conversations we need to have in order to understand the entire uh, sort of human tendency towards oppression uh, fascinating ideas Ava DuVernay decided that in order to turn that into a movie that she was going to adapt it not just the ideas in the book but the story of the author as she wrote it yeah uh, we get to discover her ideas as she has them yeah. to write this book, and as she and as she has her uh, eyes opened by the various people that she talks to and researches uh, with. Uh, Ingenue Ellis uh, plays Isabel Wilkerson, mm. uh, and yeah, at the beginning of the movie, uh, she is enlisted to write this book that is inspired by uh, the obviously the 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 tragedy. Of, well, uh, it was Trayvon Martin, Martin. Yeah. and in fact, that's dramatized in this movie. The opening uh, scene yeah, is so the Trayvon Martin, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and and if you don't know that, it, it it's, oh my God, it's where like were an you? iron to the face. It's yeah. like, oh yeah. shit, oh shit. There's a moment uh, where you're just like, if you weren't, if you didn't know that scene's yeah. coming, there's a moment where you're like, oh, are they? Oh, oh shit, this is not going to be. <laughs> that actor is playing Trayvon this Martin. Is gonna yeah. be, this is going to be a rough watch for a few minutes here. Mm. Yeah, and um, but that, but that's that case yeah. led to like you know because there's a guy who. A white guy who saw a black guy in his neighborhood was, yeah. and assumed he was a criminal called 911 to say, I'm following this guy because I assume he's a criminal. 911 said, don't do that. Yeah. And he had done nothing other than walk in his neighborhood, see a guy staring at him, get uncomfortable and walk Cir- away circle faster. Circle the block in his car. Yeah. yeah. And then he hunted the guy down and he killed him. And mm. the Florida, like judicial system which has laws in place that basically say if you even claim you're defending you you were afraid for your life you're mm-hmm. allowed to kill anybody yeah uh and he was not convicted of what is obviously a horrible crime and there is an obvious intrinsic systemic injustice here and so when uh, isabel wilkerson is giving a lecture. Uh, one of her old, I think, editors comes up to her and says, "I think there's a book to be written about this," and she thinks about it and she says, "I think that there is a lot more to this than just saying it's racist. It's a yeah. lot more complicated. Uh, still horrifying, but a lot more complicated." And that's what I want to write the book mm-hmm. about. And then she travels the world. She meets different people who, you know, have different experiences, different caste systems. Mm-hmm. She learns about the she, ways that she goes uh, to. Uh, she goes notably goes to Germany. Yeah, and asks about uh, Nazi occupation. And there's yeah. flashbacks to the Nazi occupation. Mm-hmm. There's Nazis in this movie. Yeah, uh, and she also goes to India yeah. to ask about the caste system that they that was in place for many, many, many years in India. It still is. It's, yeah, uh, the whole. Uh, 
they don't use the term untouchable anymore, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the caste system is still in place. Mm-hmm. And she starts to see that this isn't racially motivated. Mm-hmm. This is all based people do this on, to each other regardless. Regardless of, of race. Yeah. Uh, people will simply divide up their own societies yeah. by the people who are de- are deserving of everything. Right. Of right. And the people yeah. who are not allowed to have it. Yeah. And that is what a lot of societies are based on, is the idea that there are people who shouldn't have and do not deserve to Uh, have the baseline, you know, human rights that everyone else does. And it's... And she goes further than just saying this. It, it we just simply have an impulse for oppression. Yeah. That it actually is based on uh, kind of the... Almost a need to feel superior as well as... And she doesn't say it out loud, but essentially in an end sense of laziness, like yeah. I don't, I don't want to do the work. So mm-hmm. we need to invent a class of people to be our laborers. Right. And she's trying to draw parallels between, you know, the American systems of mm-hmm. racism and oppression with other systems around the world. And at first she realizes that they're, there are significant differences. And there's a really great scene where uh, a Jewish woman in Germany says, you're trying to compare what's happening in America to the Holocaust. And I understand that you see some parallels, but they are different. And she explains mm. why. And it's a big cold splash of water. Mm. Uh, but then she discovers, and this is when the, this is just a thing where it's like, if you didn't know about this, it's going to f- fuck you up. Uh, where when the Nazis were trying to decide how can we oppress this group that we hate, mm. they were inspired by the way Americans oppressed black people. And the laws that Americans had in place mm-hmm. specifically to oppress black people. And they use that as the template for their own system of oppression. And, and there's that's a, fucked. There's a scene in yeah. uh, in the movie where we get to see that board meeting with yeah, all of these all Nazi dramatized. generals, yeah. you know, kind of played by actors. Um, Can you imagine way, how difficult it would be to play a Nazi in a scene like that? It's like you just you have to wear the costume <laughs> and you have to say these things yeah, like they're yeah, logical well, to you. And it's like, oh, it's so gross. Well, I mean, I, I, it's I a tough would, gig. It's a tough gig. gig. I would think that um, that would let you understand humanity a lot better uh, if if you kind of look at because nobody wakes up and says I'm going to be evil today. They always feel like they're in the right that they're doing something logical and and positive for the world. I've known some sadists in my life who know who knew exactly what they were doing. Well, okay, then what's the motivation for a sadist? Like, what kind of pleasure are they taking? Why are they taking pleasure in cruelty? That's something to delve into as an actor. Sure, sure. I've, I've talked to enough actors, you know, yeah. they, 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 they know what they're doing that nobody is like, it, it's, I, I remember there was that episode of Star Trek where if you have this regular gig where you're coming in week after week, it's like, okay, in this one episode, you have to play a Nazi. You can say, no, yeah, that there's no way I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then like Leonard Nimoy, who actually mm. had to, they went to a Nazi planet once and Leonard mm. Nimoy, Jewish, mm. uh, refused to have photographs taken of like no publicity stills of me yeah, yeah, when yeah. I had to go undercover in a Nazi uniform. I, do I not, think Shatner too, who's also Jewish. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there was a, there was a woman who like her parents, I think had been in the Holocaust mm. and she didn't know I that she gave up acting after she that. She didn't yeah. know she would have to wear that costume. And when she found out that she had to, and she was mm. under contract and everything, she gave a bathing after that it was so yeah. fucked up. That episode, by the way, that's not, even, not even a good episode. No, it's that's actually, one of the most disgusting espou- episodes. Spouses actual fascist ideals. Yeah, in that, that, one episode. that episode is easily. And this is saying a lot because there's some shit. Like, I, we love Star Trek. There's some shit episodes of Star Trek. Oh yeah, that is the most offensive episode of Star Trek. 
And that's mm. saying something, because I've seen a few really fucking offensive <laughs> episodes of Star Trek. But that one is gross. Like, yeah. there's no yeah. reason that that should have been made. But but I, I appreciate what Alvar DuVernay is doing, because yeah. she is uh, re- really trying to let us see all of that. Uh, yeah. You read this in a book, it probably has a little bit of, like, an intellectual distance. And that's maybe why mm-hmm. she didn't want to make this into a documentary film. Yeah. Uh, because that can be a little bit shocking, <sighs> but there's a certain tendency for people to treat documentaries like comfort watches. Mm, you, you see that in like a lot of true crime documentaries or, you know, world mm. war two documentaries. People do kind of passively. Watch yeah. Kind of watch that passively. Oh, t- t- see, that's interesting. The kind of, that sort of, uh, that kind of drug of outrage, like, Oh, tut, tut. <coughs> and then you can kind of go to bed relaxed. Oh, that's never and I feel like Ava Verne did not want to do that with this film. And she could have. She, she made one of the yeah. best documentaries of the last, yeah, she like, made, 10 years. Uh, 13. Uh, yeah, which is, thir- I think it's 13th. 13th, actually. yeah. yeah. Excuse me. Which is an incredible documentary. I think it's must-see. But, like, the, the thing with a documentary, and I thought we were going to say was this about documentaries, mm-hmm. is that because they are so informational a lot of the time, Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of them are more about character, you know, whatever. But like, oftentimes they're about education. You know, here's something you didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a tendency to only hit the target demo, and you want your ideas, if they're important enough, to reach beyond the people who already agree with you. Yeah, and so trying to put them into a narrative film uh, is a way to. Hopefully, there will be some people in the audience who aren't familiar with some of these things, and you can help walk them through it in yeah. an organic way. And and I think <clears throat> I think she does a pretty good job of outlining the bullet points of the ethos, the essay, the themes uh, that uh, she's trying to illustrate. Um, I think where the film falters, though, is in the dramatization, and I think mm. that. Sometimes it does the the other elements a disservice because, frankly, although there are definitely elements in uh, the protagonist's life that are tragic, she has like two people in her life die early in the film and then yeah. you know, more later, like she's going through a really rough time. Um, it's not it's not really propulsive or anything. There's and not that it needs to be action packed, mm. but it feels like. What what is what is she doing over the course of this? Well, she's going to sit there and listen, and then occasionally formulate some ideas, and then towards the end, there's like I I was with this for a while. I really really was because okay. I think that there is definitely something to be said for movies that are about concepts. They're movies that are about intellectual ideas and trying to inspire you to have uh, interesting conversations and challenge your ideas. And they can be very forthright about that, and that is totally okay. But when you introduce the fact that they're also a drama, Mm -hmm. you have some responsibility to either get the drama right or make it so that it doesn't get in the way of anything at the very least. And I think that there are moments in the film that it does a really good job. There's a really, really great scene with... um, Oh, Nick Offerman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he has one scene in the movie where he plays a guy uh, who's coming in to like fix uh, a plumbing problem. Mm. And he's wearing a uh, Make America Great Again hat. Mm. And she's very uncomfortable being alone with him. And he uh, sees, as a plumber, as you know, contractor, sees her as an easy mark. And he's like, okay, uh, I'll get back to you with an estimate if this mm. is going to be a big deal. And well, she end- they end up talking... Well, what, about what, what, happen, what yeah. happens is like you you can sense you can sense the tension. Yeah, and they're both and, making assumptions about each other. Yeah, yeah. and and you can see all of the assumptions they're making about each other, mm-hmm. and how. Uh, and you might be doing that in the audience as well. You see yeah. that hat. You have a general. You you, and you have a belief. And um, yeah. um, Isabel Wilkerson 
rather than just say, how dare you wear that hat? Mm -hmm. Or I bet you believe in X, Y, Z, or I don't want you in my house Mm -hmm. because you definitely believe X, Y, Z. None of that. Uh She asks about his mom. Yeah, she talks about she she just lost uh, her my, mother. My, my mom just died. Yeah, and he and then he what's actually your has, what's your relationship with your mom? He actually has you know we all have a relationship mm. with our parents or lack thereof, mm. uh, and it it's a small scene, but it's basically just we're operating under assumptions over who has power here, who has mm. uh, you know, or, or, and just who we are and who we who and what we value, but the simple act of engaging with someone as a human being mm. you know I, I'm sure that won't make him necessarily vote a different way but it changes the course of that interaction dramatically yeah. and I think that's a nice little illustration of a lot of the things the movie is talking about however towards the end of the film we get like long sequences that whatever drama there has been has been wrapped up and she's just walking around an empty house smiling to herself and in voiceover wrapping everything up and I mm. just thought to myself we ran out of drama, and we just kept the movie going, <laughs> and it's starting to feel less like an excellent, intelligent, you know, maybe a little heavy-handed, but, you know, an intelligent motion mm. picture with interesting points, and starting to feel a little bit more uh, un... What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, just blunt. Uh, just blunt to a fault. There's well, only, I, I, mean, don't, you I don't mind be... being. I don't mind it if if a film is blunt. If it's to a fault. If, if it's being sincere, and um, yeah. and I feel like Ava DuVernay is really uh, has an important point. She feels is important enough to make in this mm-hmm. sort of way. Uh, I remember um, interviewing. Uh, yeah. n- I'm not dropping names. This is something I did. This yeah. is pertinent. But I, I got to interview Spike Lee once. You, yeah, you uh, for story. for his movie Chirac. And Chirac is a, a very unusual animal because it's actually very much, very directly about violence in Chicago. That's what the title is. Uh, it's, yeah. Chicago is so violent, they call it Chirac. And uh, there are some pretty damning uh, scenes in there of like sort, sort of looking at the violence very in a very raw fashion. There's these characters who have lost people. There's a, a preacher character played by John Cusack who preaches about the violence and how we need to stop it. But the story is a verse presentation of Lysistrata, mm-hmm. which is about a sex strike. Yeah. Uh, Lysistrata's ancient Greek play about uh, women who withhold sex until men stop fighting in wars. Yeah. And it's kind of a comedy. It is. It is and, a comedy. And, uh, I blew my mind when I was a kid when I read it because like, at that point, all the Greek tragedies I knew, all the Greek plays I knew were, were tragedies. tragedies. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, Oh, they can be wacky and full of sex. Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah. we do not talk about this enough. <laughs> this is amazing. So yeah, this is this is about Lysistrata. It's the Lysistrata yeah. story. There's rhyming dialogue. People mm-hmm. are wearing these really outlandish costumes, uh, and yeah, all the these criminal characters are kind of wacky. But it, underneath all of this is actually <coughs> very real concern about mm-hmm. gang violence in Chicago. And I asked him about that. You know, this is about gang violence in Chicago. But you turn it into sort of like this Greek comedy. Wouldn't this have been better served by maybe a documentary? And this is when Spike Lee kind of came at me a little bit. I was yeah. terrified because <laughs> he's Spike Lee. It's like, like I was not making light of that. It's like, no, I'm not, not, not accusing you of making light of this thing. No, please don't. <laughs> you're talking about the, creative, don't you're me, talking about the creative decision to make a movie yeah. one way as opposed to another and why you made that choice. Yeah. So, But yeah, he said that this this was a really, I thought, a, an effective way to communicate that was like tell yeah. the sort of almost fantasy story with the real violence under, undergirding it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, maybe Alvar DuVernay is trying to do that. She's trying to tell sort of uh, 
visualizations mm-hmm. of these really dramatic things while also kind of working her own narrative into that to give us a, a ground to stand on, kind of a baseline know, and, reading. And I totally get that. Mm. And I, I totally get that. I, I see the intention. That part's clear. It's the execution I don't think always works. Right. Where there's a lot of, there's a lot of like flashbacks to like historical figures, some real, some maybe not as, we don't know as much about them perhaps, mm. but uh, you know, we're telling their, their narrative story anyway. Um, and that's sort of illustrating the premise and that's all great. But when it comes to Isabel Wilkerson's life, there are definitely elements of it that definitely land. But I feel like towards by the end of the movie, we realize that this dramatization of the author's life as mm. she was writing the book, that's the part that I hesitate to use the word insincere, but I bring it mm. up because you use it. Like it's only Blunt is only a problem if it's insincere, mm. is what you said. I'm not sure I agree with that, but it's it's I'll just take that and run with it. Um it's the drama that felt perfunctory at times. Mm. And as a result, I thought that let down the ideas. Okay. Sometimes the drama works. Sometimes I think it doesn't. And I think it kind of, it, unfortunately it ends on that note where I feel like it, it ends on a note that is, you know, a bit like the character has been on a bit more of a gigantic journey than the actual events of the film support ideologically. Yes. But in terms well, of the actual like drama uh... that was depicted, that part is not, perhaps sold as well as it could have been uh, in order well, to earn that ending. I, I suppose so, but I think uh, it, it's a good depiction of the creative process, and mm-hmm. that's the part of it I appreciate. It. No, I, so that, that didn't yeah. bother me so much. I admire this movie. <coughs> I do. I, I admire this movie. I mostly like it. Uh, like I said, I think it's, it's a little heavy-handed and doesn't always earn that, but um, here here's a filmmaker who is, and even when it's clumsy, it's noble, like trying to make sure that their audience experiences not just like an emotional journey, not just beautiful visuals or anything like that, but ideas that challenge them. Yeah. And is willing to take the risk of doing that in such a forthright way that those ideas cannot be overlooked in favor of the drama. Yeah. You can't just enjoy it as a drama and go, yeah, I guess it did have some interesting things. But mostly I just like the characters, blah, blah, blah. No. You engage with the ideas of origin or you will not know what to do with yourself in the theater. <laughs> that's exactly what this movie is. And I, I, I admire that. I think that's a daring choice. And I think it gets away with it really, really well for the most part. Okay. But I do think that the choices that were made to dramatize it as the uh, biopic of the author don't always serve the ideas as well as they could, and they felt, after a while, they, the the use of that as an excuse to introduce these ideas to the audience felt a little uh, more contrived right. than they needed to, and I thought that undermined the overall effect. But not to the extent that I disliked the movie or anything like that. I just probably keep it off my best of the year list or something. Um, and then do we... Own, oh, we have two more things left. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more feature film. Uh, and this is a, a weird thing that just happened. <laughs> there's a new Batman movie out. Did you know? Now, you might think to yourself, oh, there's a new Batman movie. Well, it didn't go to theaters. It must have gone to streaming. It must be on the Warner Brothers streaming service. It's not. It's on it's Amazon. On, it's yeah. on Amazon Prime. It's, it's part of the uh, the whole yeah. disastrous uh, Warner Brothers fire sale that's been going on. But like, there, there's this thing going on right now where like they were gonna write <laughs> off uh, the Wiley e. Coyote movie, which apparently is everyone who has seen it says is really good. I don't know, I haven't seen it yet, but Ooh. it's encouraging that they say that. Uh, they were gonna write it off as a as a as a tax write off. 
Uh, and then after a lot of people publicly said it's a great movie and Warner Brothers is fucking up, they said, okay, fine. We'll let someone else buy it if we can find a buyer. Mm. And then apparently they have not, even though people have made an offer, it's not as much money as they want. And their concern is, is this enough money to justify the brand confusion of having a Looney Tune Which premiere been, on Netflix or something? Yeah. And I'm like, you're doing Warner. it this owned, weekend! By Warner Brothers. But you're doing it this weekend. You let it happen. It's, it's yeah. not as high profile. But there's an animated movie called Merry Little Batman. Uh, which is a, a Batman story set at Christmas, you know, not unlike Batman Returns, except largely unlike Batman Returns. Uh, and it is, it takes place in an interesting... Well, it's the Home Alone story. It's kind of Home Alone. That starts that way, and it kind of goes off in another direction eventually, but there is... Okay, so if you know Batman, but you only know Batman from the movies, there's a lot of Batman you don't know. There's mm-hmm. a lot of Batman characters in the comics, a lot of Batman stories in the comics that are have been part of the character for a really long time now, but they haven't quite made their way to the movies. And one of those characters is Batman's son, Damian Wayne. Damian Wayne... is one of the Robins at this point, right? He became a Robin. He became a Robin. The idea is, you might recall in uh, the Christopher Nolan movies uh, that uh, Batman had an affair with uh, the daughter of uh, Henri Ducard, a.k.a. Ra's al Ghul. Uh, and that happened in the comics in the 70s. And at some point they said, hey, you know, she like lives in a secret society away from the world or whatever like that. If she had a kid, she probably wouldn't tell anyone about it. And so at some point in the last 10, 15 years or so, hey, Bruce, you have a kid. Okay. And he's like a, 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 like a spoiled... 12-year-old who's been taught to be an assassin since he was old enough to oh, walk. God. And he's an asshole. And basically just, hey, he's your... I, f- I forget the context, but basically it's like, hey, you're taking care of him now. And he's like, oh, okay. I basically have to turn a supervillain into Batman. <laughs> because he's into, gonna... Into he's, Robin, yeah. He's, I'm gonna turn him into Robin and I'm gonna have to teach him how not to be an asshole and a killer. Okay, well, that's a different take kind of interesting i didn't read a lot of batman comics from that era onward but interesting character they've taken the damian wayne character and totally scraped off all those edges to the point where he is he's still just a precocious eight-year-old yeah he's 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 a little kid uh and in this movie uh batman is a single dad uh he has been raising damian wayne since he was since he was uh, i guess presumably a baby I thought Catwoman was his mom. They don't they, really say they, who his they, mom is. They don't specifically say. I'm pretty sure they leave it open to be either Catwoman or Talia. The fact that they named their cat Selina mm. suggests to me that no, it's probably he, not and Selina. A, and he's a Talia tattoo. There's yeah. a, a shot early on where a Batman. Uh, it's like, ooh, uh, you, you fell, Damien. You fell down. I hope you didn't break a rib. You didn't break a rib? Because I know what that's like. And he lifts his shirt and his like, ch- chest everywhere. is all mangled. Because yeah. broke, I've broken every one of my ribs. Yeah. And uh, if you look on his like, mangled chest, there's a yeah. Talia tattoo on there. That's why I think it's probably Talia. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, so Damien Wayne has been raised by Bruce and Alfred. No other Robins in the movie. Uh, and he's like eight years old. And he's a little kid. He still believes in Santa. Uh, and what he wants, because he knows his dad is Batman. What he wants is to be Batman. That's his dream. He wants to be his dad. He looks up to his dad. His dad is played by Luke Wilson, by the way, which Mm -hmm. is an interesting choice for Batman. As a sort of softer Batman, I think he's actually good casting. Uh, Batman, for for Christmas, gets Damian Wayne his own 
utility belt, but it's full of like safety devices, ba- like bandages, a, alarms, that know, kind a whistle, of stuff, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And Damian Wayne's kind of disappointed he, by this. He gets, he gets a yeah. little uh, like throwing bat star, but it's made of foam. Yeah, kind of exactly. It's a, it's a training utility belt, and he's a little insulted by this. And when his dad is called away on an unexpected emergency, he sends Alfred out basically to get marshmallows because they're going to have hot cocoa and he's alone in the mansion and he decides he's going to like use this opportunity to train to be Batman. He's going to use the utility belt. He's going to make his dad proud. And that's when two thieves break into Wayne Manor to try to steal Christmas. And for about half an hour, yeah, it's, it's home alone with Batman's son. That's a good pitch. Yeah. Yeah. That's a solid pitch. And that's kind of fun. And that first I'm like, okay, this is fine, but this is enough material for like a 20 minute episode of TV. Mm. How are we going to expand on this? And what eventually happens is they get away, they steal his utility belt and he decides he's going to go down to the bat cave. He finds a bat suit that will like conform to fit him. And he goes out into Gotham city in order to be like his dad to get that belt back, you know, sort of <coughs> prove to his dad that he's mm-hmm. capable of being a hero. And on the way, he wrecks everything. <laughs> he destroys Christmas. He basically destroys Christmas. Part of it is the manipulations of, like, the Jokers in it, and he's, like, mm-hmm. sort of manipulating this kid. But a lot of it is he's just not good at this, and he's not responsible, and he fucks up a lot. Um, I wish it was funnier. It's clearly a comedy, and I really didn't laugh very much, but there's definitely things I liked in it. I really mm. like the animation style, which is very uh, yeah. angular and strange a lot of the time. Uh, it's it's uh, a little bit messy. Like it's it's yeah. clearly a stylized kind of mess, but I appreciate that. Like uh, yeah. everything's really kind of elongated. Uh, Damien is like this teeny little ball of a child that just sort of bounces yeah. off the walls. Uh, I love the way the Joker was was designed he's because fun. he's like on a matrix with the blue meanies from Yellow Submarine. Mm, yeah. Uh, and it looks a little bit like him from the Powerpuff <clears throat> That's, Girls. I was just yeah, trying um, to picture it. Who does he remind me of? He yeah, reminds me of him from Powerpuff from him, Girls. From yeah, exactly. In, in the yeah. voice acting as well. Yeah. Um, but this is in the future, so all of the villains are like older. Uh, yeah. uh, the penguin is in it. He's in a rascal scooter. Yeah. <laughs> the penguin like, looks like he's 80. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, uh, that they, we basically find out that, like, Batman, when Damien was born, decided to just clean up Gotham as quick as possible, just so they can yeah. spend time with his kid. And so, crime has been gone from Gotham for a long time, and the villains are just now coming back. Mm. And But they're all older now. And they're all older now, and they have this big plan to steal Christmas, and they have this plan for Damien Wayne, which actually, like, I'm not going to ruin it, because, like, there's a climactic bit in the movie mm. where the villains are alone with Damien Wayne, and... It's weirdly psychologically interesting, actually. Like, in a way, I wasn't really... I, I kind of thought well, it, they were going there, but they really push... It addresses the, something about yeah. superheroes that yeah. they bring up sometimes, but is always eventually kind of shrugged off. The, we're that, not so different, you and I. Yeah, the we're not so different, you and I speech. It's like, yeah, yeah we're both, like... Uh, there's a line from uh, Batman Returns that I really like. Mm. Uh, you're you're just mad because I'm a genuine freak and you have to put on a mask. Yeah. Like they're both monsters. These characters, yeah. they both murder people. They both they live want outside to. of society. Yeah. They both dress up uh, as and they all dress up as animals. They all clearly have a kink. Yeah. Like you know, there's there's a lot of similarities. Uh, it's but, just their moral code is different. 
But, you know, at, at the end of uh, those movies, we're always back on the hero's side because we intrinsically understand that heroes are heroic and villains are villainous. Yeah. That, it, you know, there's this, the, the black and white morality thing. Yeah, it always comes and, down uh, to some, some sort of simplicity. Yeah. Uh, this film edges a little bit closer to that, where yeah. you are doing heroic things, but you're actually doing villain things. Yeah. And the kid actually has a moment like, oh, shoot. I wasn't even trying, and yeah, I was doing villain things. I was things. trying to be a hero, but I was trying to do it for selfish reasons, and that's mm. kind of indistinguishable from villainy in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I that, like that. I like that's that, surprisingly that, mature, that moment, right? Yeah. There's also some kind of like sweet elements with the villains at the end, which I thought actually kind of earned uh-huh. in an unexpected way, and I thought that was really, really nice. I thought Luke Wilson actually, like his version of Batman, I, I, I really started to really like this like really like kind of good dad patriarch uh-huh. um there's this one conceit where well batman is like gone he's like out of the country or something like that mm-hmm. while all this is going on uh damien wayne puts on this like high-tech batman suit and it's got like the the brain patterns of his dad in there so that's the guy all, that, the suit is also voiced by luke wilson yeah, and even though it's not his dad, and he's aware that he's not his dad, he's able to say, well, I think your dad would say this. There's a really tender moments there, actually, and I think, again, they actually feel earned. That's really, really cool. Story-wise, it, it feels bloated. Like, it's 90 oh, it's minutes. Thin, it's yeah. way too long. It's, it's, this, uh, is, this, yeah, this is an hour-long mm-hmm. holiday special that got out of hand. I maybe, feel. maybe so. You know, uh, this is on TV. It's like, oh, there's a special episode of Batman for Christmas. And this was on like 1995. I would be like, oh my God, I love this. I'm going to watch this every <laughs> year. But with the added padding, it's just a lot. It's just kind of too much, unfortunately. I was reminded of uh, I, what I think that happened with this was it was meant to air on television. Mm-hmm. Like, not as a movie. It was meant to be aired like with commercial breaks. Possibly. And yeah. it definitely uh, has some elements and, that support that when that happens sometimes they make it in such a way that it can actually be aired in separate episodes over the mm-hmm. course of several nights yeah so they can break it up and use it as episodes of the show they did that with the futurama movies mm-hmm. uh they did that with uh the dexter's laboratory movie ego trip if you ever saw that one no um, i didn't but fair enough i, I love that one. I like, I, ego sure. trip is really fun but uh so yeah it has that sort of we're dividing this in three. Yeah, there's the Home like, Alone bit, there's yeah, the has, Fun and Games bit, and then there's like the super villain bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I feel like yeah. maybe if you had seen it as three episodes, or if you had seen it with the commercial breaks, it would have read a lot better. Maybe. As a cert- single feature, it does feel like several things strung up in a line. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a, a complete movie. It doesn't move like yeah. a movie. And I do think it just... It, it, the, the tragedy of it is that it's clearly trying to be funny, and it's not terribly funny. It's likable enough, yeah. but I didn't really laugh. Well, I, 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 I chuckled, and I think you know, being affable mm. is gets gets you a long way. There's definitely that. I think there is. I'm just talking to someone online about this, but um, there are comedies that are trying to be funny and succeed. Then there are comedies that are trying to be funny and fail, but they're still comedies. They're trying. Mm. There's a particular breed of comedy. I don't know if we have a name for it, where. They're not really trying to make you laugh. They're just trying to be good-natured and amiable. Mm. And that's it. That's where we live. Yeah. We're just trying to like just keep you in good spirits like, and keep everything light. light. Yeah, everything yeah. light. Everything's affable. And that's it. <clears throat> if we get you to laugh a couple of times, we win. But even if you don't laugh once, you're not going to say to yourself, I hated watching that. Yeah. Or, or that or that it wasn't funny or that it wasn't even yeah. funny but like it was certainly like a, a light charming piece of entertainment and 
I can't think of many movies in that mold that stick with me. Mm. But there are also movies I wouldn't like go out of my way not to recommend to anybody. Yeah. Either. It's just it's a perfectly okay watch. There's another animated movie coming out before the end of the year where I'm gonna say pretty much the exact same thing. Where it's it's like it's fine, uh-huh. but it's not great. But it's fine. And you can watch it and it'll be you'll enjoy it kinda. Um This has a little bit more personality. Yeah. Than that. The, the, well, the, the animated style uh, so is, is really great. And, yeah. and the villains were all wonderful. Yeah, they did a good job with that. I, I think the animation made me laugh just because of the physicality of it. The slapstick was yeah. really great. There's these two really cool looking... The thieves look really cool, and I like mm. their personalities. Yeah. And uh, the bits where, uh, the, you know, the son of Batman is doing his Home Alone shtick. That, that was funny. That was... That- it was amusing, uh, and it was, didn't yeah. laugh, you know. Uh, and the just the way the Joker moved and spoke. There's there's a bit where yeah. he's like approaching somebody, but rather than have him like walk across the floor, they cut for some no reason whatsoever to a really low angle. He's doing a backflip through the air while he's delivering his dialogue, and yeah. then just strolls on in the next shot. It's like what? <laughs> it's like complete nonsense circus trick the clown is doing in the middle of the scene. Yeah. I like that kind of stuff. No, it's 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 mm. good. So it's again, it's you might think that because Warner Brothers didn't want this and want about Amazon and it's not getting a lot of fanfare that it's not worth your time it's not bad it's not bad I, I don't love it but it's not mm-hmm. bad and it's certainly more interesting than I thought it would be going into mm-hmm. it like at first I was like okay this is just gonna be some cutesy stuff and that's okay but no it went to some interesting places mm-hmm. good for them so yeah I dug it um, and speaking of animation <laughs> that might surprise you uh, tell me about this toilet <laughs> where they um, because I've only seen a right. couple of these, and they're I'm yeah. Baffled. There's 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 about sixty some episodes. I think sixty four, and now most of them are under sixty seconds. Mm. Some of them are like ten seconds long, uh, and they started with the uh, I think the first twenty seven or so episodes when that sort of upright uh, cell phone. Mm-hmm. Screen aspect size ratio. aspect yeah. ratio, yeah. and then they expanded to like more YouTube size later mm-hmm. on. But uh, these are conceived of by an animator named Alexei Garasimov, mm. better known by his screen name Dafuck Boom. <laughs> that is D A D A capital F U Q exclamation point question mark Boom exclamation mm. point. Uh, and uh, he made these, and I had to look all of this stuff up because this is mm. all well out of my realm of experience. <laughs> uh, they come from the country Georgia. And they were made by uh, using like uh, artif- like digital artifacts from a lot of well-known video games. Yeah. Uh, there's something called Source Filmmaker that was available through uh, the video game shop Valve. Uh, and he used things like uh, characters from Half-Life 2 and Gary's Mod, which are things I'm not directly familiar with. I've just heard about these things. I know a little from, bit about them. Some yeah. like, video games. Well, Half-Life 2 is um, it's one of the most... like. Mm. acclaimed and kind of like important video games of its era and it was used for a lot of different very uh, yeah. various uh, mods Half-Life 2 came out in the early 2000s and I was not paying attention yeah um, so yeah uh, this animator this Georgian animator uh, probably young kid used some of these artifacts and he used this a very a reused piece of music which is a remix of oh what was it it's um mm. It's a Timbaland song, uh, and it's remixed with like a Turkish pop song, mm. and uh, so it's uh, 
the the beat of the Timbaland song, and it's the the lyrics of this Turkish pop song where he says "skibbity skibbity dub dub yes yes." Yeah, that's where "skibbity" comes from. Mm. And he uses these characters from Half Life, and their heads pop out of toilets, like you do. And uh, he animates their faces, and they're really kind of like strangely stretched out, like these weird rictus grins. Mm-hmm. And they sing sings this uh, bit, skibbity skibbity dub dub yes yes yes. It's really uh, really catchy, really obnoxious. And then it lunges lunges at the camera, at the viewer, and you essentially you're dead. These monsters are popping up out of toilets. Got it. Uh, as these episodes go on, the mon- the toilets begin sliding around town. You get to see them in cities. They grow bigger and bigger. They start sliding down the streets. They have weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the skibbity toilets <laughs> with these Gary's Mod and Half-Life 2 characters singing this obnoxious Turkish pop song are taking over the world. Mm. Then an mm. enemy force appears in this weirdly sort of fascistic almost like pink floyd the wall hmm. type character where there's these guys in like long coats and black gloves with uh security cameras for heads hmm. and they are okay trying to fight back against these skibbity toilets and as the episodes go on it turns into an outright conflagration hmm. where these camera headed people and uh, the camera headed people end up teaming up with speaker-headed people and cathode ray head Hmm. cathode ray tube headed people uh as they are using their increasingly sophisticated weapons and uh essentially kaiju after a while these gigantic Uh mechanical monsters to fight off these the scrappy force of uh skibbity toilets that are coming in and 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 destroying cities and after uh by the end of this series it's just complete chaos is it over or is it still going uh, as far as I know, it's still going. Okay. As of, but so there, so has, there, hasn't, been, there hasn't been like a conclusion. I'm not sure okay. if there's a way to conclude this story that's going on throughout these. Oh, I think we need episodes. to give. What, what's the what's the what? De, it's the fuck something. The fuck boom. I think you're not giving the fuck boom enough credit. <laughs> Surely they wouldn't have started on mm. the journey with Skibbity Toilet mm. without knowing where they were going. Uh, maybe I don't know. I think Defuck Boom might just be making this up as well. As it's also along, quite entirely but... possible. Um, what? Okay, so you're describing well, you're describing what it is. Uh, well, there, well, there's just clearly something going on here. Yeah. What? What is? What is? What do you? What is grabbing people? What is? Mm. What in your estimation? Granted, mm. you're not yet well, of this generation that's really responding to this, mm. but what? What are we missing besides well, just that it's weird? I think the weird is part of it. Think sure. back, and I think this is really important, and I, I, I can credit uh, a, a, an online critic named... Uh, he's the, the film theorist. He was in the Five Nights at Freddy's movie. His name yeah. is Matt Pat. Yeah. Uh, and he actually did a video on, on Defuck Boom and on the Skibbity Toilet phenomenon, so I got a lot, some of these ah. theories from him as well. But um, he pointed out that the characters fly around past uh, the World Trade Towers, at one mm, point in here. Okay. So this is clearly set... It's a period piece. It's a period piece. It's set okay. prior to 2001. Okay. Think back to what you were doing online in, like, 2000. You're probably on, like, Newgrounds. Or, <laughs> or uh, you know, watching uh, Gonads in Strife. Or uh, End of the World. Like, okay, here's, so here's the Earth, if you remember that one. Or, uh, no. or uh, uh I don't want to know your name. I just want bang, bang, bang. You don't remember these early 2000 no, I remember. Memes. I remember Hamster Dance. Hamster I remember Dance, uh, Look at My Horse. My Horse is Amazing. Uh, see, I didn't know that one. Okay. I remember that. Um, 
or, or Mar- they're called Mario twins. You remember the Mario twins? No, really. No, the the idea of if you go back to sort of that particular era when a lot of these things that are now mainstays of it was internet back when culture, it was harder to download video. By yeah, the way. well, it like, was before stream, good, it was yeah. prior to YouTube, so there wasn't yeah. streaming technology yet. It yeah. was, and it was all devoted to a, a certain kind of humor that uh, they described at the time as being random, oh, surre- yeah. surrealist humor. Yeah, uh, and a lot of it was meant to be pretty shocking. There's a lot yeah. of a lot of cussing, a lot of penises, a yeah. lot of poop jokes. Unexpected juxtaposition of naive imagery with swearing or cynical concepts yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah. And, and these are all basically adult swim. Uh, what adults yeah, adult the same energy that adult swim. A lot of those kids yeah. went on to make adult swim. Yeah. Uh, and these are all being made by kids in dorm rooms, like or, yeah. or in their bedrooms. Like this is all amateur uh, stuff that was really dictating what the internet was going to become. That's the skibbity toilets. Okay, it's just, things, is it just harkening back to that, or is it commenting well, on? Well, it? The, think of think of what the commentary is though here. What is the skibbity toilet doing? It's, it's sort of popping up. It's indoctrinating other people. It started to kind of uh, absorb and assimilate people like the Borg, mm. and it is all based on this sort of toilet humor. They are little <laughs> toilets, <laughs> and uh, they are uh, sort of using this new media to spread out through a the landscape and what's fighting back against them but old media mm. cameras cathode ray tubes speakers these various mm. corporate entertainment entities yeah. that are using sophisticated weapons against a new media force that is now proliferating and uh, i can but, see that appealing to a, and a what new happens, generation because you feel like you know no one's getting my art yeah and yeah. and what's happening yeah. is uh and it happens both directions the skibbity toilets mm. start like Wrath of Khan style and planting toilets in the new media and the new media gets infected and starts fighting on their side but then the new media like reinfects them and now they're trying to sort of re-infiltrate and after a while this kind of control over media turns into a conflagration over a completely wasted artistic landscape Hmm. that this need that uh this need for corporate uh art to keep control over uh guerrilla art yeah is so insidious that it's causing nothing but destruction and that even the guerrilla art has come to play their game. And it it actually starts to be this very kind of cynical commentary on the way media is a battleground for various artistic voices and how the battle becomes far more important than the art after a while. Whitney, I haven't seen, I've seen a little bit of this. Uh Uh-huh. But I'm going to ask you, as someone who's seen, you've seen all of it now. Uh, everything that's been posted yeah. to date, like uh, the first 64 episodes. Everything yeah. you can be expected to see. Uh-huh. Is this the best movie of the year? It It's, something's going on here. Yeah. And I needed to talk about it. This okay. is why I'm bringing this up. Is, is Can this count as like uh, one of the mo- most significant films that's come out in 2023? Yes. It's maybe more watched than something like Barbie. Mm. Uh, this thing has billions of views. Uh and it I imagine a lot of that's people watching it more than once. Absolutely, like, it is. Yeah, okay, but still, this thing yeah. came out in February, yeah. and it you know it's getting billions and billions of views. Uh, let's see, I actually took a few notes, so let me look at here. Uh, you got this, Whitney. I believe in you. Uh, something else that uh, was really telling about sort of the old media is when the speaker-headed people defeat a skibbity toilet. They play a Tears for Fears song. They play Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Oh, okay, that is the one you play from the yeah. fucking eighties. Yeah, not this is and not. The, the Gears of War sad remake. Or no, no, the, like the, the original. The yeah. original, okay. Good. Uh, 
that's that's my generation. Yeah. That's before my generation. Like I, I was a kid when that movie, when that song came out. I think it counts. But and yeah. they also use as one of their weapons that old THX fanfare that uh, used to play before movies. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, when THX was new, uh, for those who weren't going to theaters at the time, this was yeah. like in the early nineties. Yeah. Uh, Surround sounds like in theaters was still relatively new. That really only kind of came into being in the late seventies. Yeah. And that technology just kept getting better and better yeah, and bigger and bigger. Quadraphonics on all that yeah. kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah. THX was like this new digital format yeah. that was doing, uh, like more channels, uh, really louder, bigger, kind of better sound systems. And you theaters. could hear definitely things in the back of the yeah. theater more clearly that they're supposed to be back there. Yeah. And, uh, in order to, test the sound system they would say this theater has been outfitted with thx and uh it would be a black screen a blue outline would appear around the border and then the just gigantic metallic thx logo would fade in very slowly uh with the loudest noise you've ever heard (laughs) and it starts slow too it's It's almost like a horror movie and and, yeah this like big digital push this gigantic yeah. Yeah, noise would just sort of push a, like a wall of sound right at you. Uh, the Simpsons parodied that and they did a really really good job because everyone in the theater and it's a THX logo mm. and it's so loud that like people's teeth literally Somebody's shatter. head explodes. Yeah. THX, the audience is now deaf and then Grandpa Simpson yells turn it up! Oh, well, turn it well, the, up! The audience is now deaf was the spoof from Tiny Toons. You're right! I confused the two. I <laughs> and, confused and, and the Tiny two. Tiny Toons they called it THUD and uh, T-H-U-D yeah. and yeah they just everything came on it's like oh no they're gonna do the sound system and people are like putting on helmets and yeah. hiding underneath yeah okay you're, so you're right i, I conflated the two but in the simpsons one but, grandpa simpson yells turn it up yeah, because turn his up. hearing isn't very good apparently. point is that's something we remember yeah. that's old media that's old film that's ancient media like no yeah. one no one runs into that by accident anymore it's not mm. like that's like still on streaming or I, something, I think it's you telling know? that that defuck yeah. boom who was born in 1998 oh. uh thought to use that as a weapon of the opposition mm. of the old guys the old Gar are using that, and uh, it doesn't seem to have Especially a very. Consider that, like that was like THX was a creation of, if not directly by, but part of the enterprise of George Lucas, yeah. Who in the previous generation before that was considered the new guard, yeah. You know, the person pushing things forward, the person changing cinema, the person, uh, uh, um, sort of legitimizing popular mm-hmm. culture. Uh, that's interesting. In other words, yeah. Uh, but by the way, I, lo- I looked it up. The, uh, the the actual mashups of the song, the Timberland song, is called "Give It to Me." Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, you probably know oh, "Give yeah. It to Me." And yeah. Uh, yeah. and the Turkish pop song is called "Dom Dom Yes Yes" uh, by an artist named Biser King, or maybe it's Biser King, mm. um, that I I know nothing about. But uh, that's also emblematic of that kind of remix culture that was going on. And we talked about this recently on another podcast about this idea of culture jamming, yeah. remixing a lot of media to sort of find this kind of ecstatic truth lurking inside of it. Yeah. Using editing as a way of dissecting media. Yeah. That's Skibbity Toilet. Skibbity Toilet is dissecting media. And in fact, dissecting media is all this generation has. Yeah. There isn't a baseline for them anymore. There's just a constant fight as to who's using what artifacts. The fact that Skibbity Toilet is used with all of these pre-existing editing materials using artifacts from pre-existing video games is itself just a remix. Yeah. Uh, that's the natural world now. Anybody who tries to be the old media, where you kind of keep things locked up in a box, is now an old idea that the new generation isn't jibing with. 
I find that there's a lot, a lot of fascinating things going on with Skibbity Toilet. Mm-hmm. It's not just silly toilet humor. It is at first. Yeah. You watch those first I thought, couple. I thought, it was very, I thought it was very abrasive enough putting after a bit. And I was like, okay, and, I got and, this, and I yeah, can move on. And just kind but of like, like repeating it, it, that same clip over and over again. Yeah. It's supposed to be a little bit obnoxious. And, but but watch, go, watch yeah. Gonads and Strife at some point. It's obnoxious. I, I didn't watch, watch the that. hamster dance. I think that was supposed to be a little annoying. Um Disney Actually, I watched that for a really long time. Disney bought the Hamster Dance. By I know because they well they they the Hamster they, Dance was a Disney song. It was a Disney song that yeah. they they ripped yeah. off without asking. Yeah, it was, it was a, uh, from Robin Hood. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not gonna do it. I'll get sued. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, okay, well, so skipping uh, yeah, skipping the toilet. If uh, if you uh, have made a. Uh, like a, a raunchy video of yourself and you mm. don't want it leaked online just put disney music underneath it yeah disney will tear it down for yeah. you yeah whatever they're, it leaks they're, online they're good about that all right so uh it's time for our review roundup we're gonna mm-hmm. look at everything that we discussed this week and uh give you just our quick thoughts uh and we uh, by request we review our films on a scale the scale is c minus to c plus a c is an average film or or, or an average skibbity toilet i guess uh, and uh, C plus would be above average. Those are movies or skibbity toilets that we like genuinely recommend. Uh, whether we think they're the best of the year, or best ever made, or just really good, and we hope you see them. That's C plus. And then C minus is below average. Those are movies that we don't particularly recommend. Maybe we think they're terrible movies or terrible skibbity toilets, or maybe we just don't think they're the best skibbity toilets we've ever seen or movies. Uh, on that note, mm. Whitney skibbity toilets. Skibbity toilet. Uh, look as. Mm. As an entertainment, it is going to be abrasive. Uh, if you're a kid, it's going to be obnoxious. Unless you're a kid, it's going to be really, really obnoxious. Yeah. Uh, if you want to see a Godardian essay on the <laughs> cinema dying over and over and over <laughs> again, Christ. then maybe, yeah, Skibbity Toilet's a C+. <laughs> wow. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Merry Little Batman. A C? It, <clears throat> yeah. You use the word affable numerous times. I think that's perfectly apt. Yeah, it, it's it's not good enough to be a C plus. It's not funny mm. enough, and it feels kind of bloated. But I really did like it more than I thought I would as it began. It really grew on me, and it actually went to some interesting character places that, uh, frankly, other superhero movies, including Batman movies, don't always do very well. Yeah. And I have to give it credit for that, and I give it credit for a very fun animation style, which is... Very atypical of everything else Warner Brothers has been doing with their uh, characters for a long time. So, yeah, a, a high C. All right. A high C. Uh, let's see here. Origin. Origin. I give it a C+. Plus. Mm. I, I really liked it. I really liked the ideas it was uh, engaging with. It was engaging very directly with. Mm-hmm. It was talking very straightly about. Um, I didn't mind that the author kind of, like, faded in and out of the story throughout. Because mm-hmm. that's the way a lot of books operate. The, sure. the author's personality is sometimes right there on the surface. Sometimes it's uh, just the prose. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the character kind of drifts in and out wasn't an issue for me. I really, really loved it. So I gave it a C+. Yeah. Uh, I definitely think it does an excellent job of conveying interesting and, uh, you know, hopefully I- challenging ideas to mm-hmm. the audience. And I hope people see this movie who aren't necessarily the obvious target demo for it. People who just, you know, people who read the book, for example. Um, I hope it finds its way to people who will actually have their minds blown by it. Uh, I wish the drama was a little stronger, so I'm going to I'm gonna give it a C plus, but it's a very low C plus. Okay. It's like, it's like <coughs> just on the edge of not quite working right, but I do think overall, uh, you know, it's 
a didactic film, and I think it mm. does that part very, very well. I think the drama isn't the best, but it doesn't hurt it too much. Um, let's see. Poor Things. Poor Things. Uh, it, it's a C+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's not perfect. Uh, I, I found the design to be a little bit off. The, the first third was almost really abrasive in a way that I didn't like. Not, um, not in a good skibbity toilet way. No, no. And, and I'm used to Yorgos Lanthimos brand of abrasive, but I yeah. feel like he, he was doing something a little too affected uh, yeah. throughout a, a lot of it. I, I don't like the style. I think the story's a little clunky at the end, but ultimately the thoughts it has mm-hmm. and the journey that you're going on uh, really does take you to some really interesting places. I think it's very thoughtful. Yeah. I think it's very humane. I think it's very optimistic yeah. uh, in, in ways... Uh, in, in, in intellectual ways that you don't get from this kind of movie ordinarily. Yeah. So, yeah. C+. Plus. Nah, I mean, I have a C plus as well. I agree. It's got some... It's, it's a little uneven at times, but mm. I'm finding after I've seen it that my mind keeps going back to it in some very positive ways. And I'm kind of overlooking the things that I didn't think work in favor of the stuff that I thought was actually kind of bold and exciting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, not my favorite of the year by any stretch, but, yeah, very good movie. It's a C+. Uh, and then, uh, lastly, The Boy and the Heron. The Boy and the Heron is a high C. Um mm. Uh, which is weird to say about a Miyazaki film. He's usually very... Uh, just great. Yeah. Just usually just great. Straight up great. And th- this one's a little uneven. Uh, it's mm. it's a little bit strangely, like, visually ambitious, but in terms of, like, storytelling, isn't making its points very clearly. Yeah, I use the word obtuse. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, again, I want to rewatch this one and give it another shot. I think this one actually warrants it. I don't always make an effort to do that before the end of the year, but I'm going to make the effort this time. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm going to give it a high C. I think it is uh, beautifully animated, certainly. Uh, wonderfully realized. Mm. Uh, but it feels a little incohesive yeah. and a little obtuse. And I don't know if that's because it's incohesive and obtuse or because it's brilliant and I missed it. <laughs> and Yamazaki is a talented enough filmmaker that while I'm not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and say it must be great, I'm just not going to bother, I will give it another chance yeah. to see if maybe I miss something. And, you know, sometimes that turns out to be the case and I end up really loving a movie on the second watch. Often I'm like, no, I got it. Hmm. But I'm going to give this one a shot. So, anyway. Uh, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Uh, Next week, we will be back with reviews of other stuff (laughs) that uh, is coming out. I think American Fiction might be coming out next week. Oh, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, So we got that. I know we got uh, uh, Zone of Interest uh, is uh, uh, on its way as well. Um, Oh, Rebel Moon, the new Zack Snyder movie. Oh, is boy. coming out this weekend, mm-hmm. so we'll be we'll be checking that out, uh, and other things as well, I'm sure. So it's uh, a, a sci-fi rendition of Seven Samurai. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. a, another one. We've had those before. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, this is uh, this has been critically acclaimed. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to write in, our uh, letters episodes are back. We've got another one coming out in a day or two. Uh, which uh, it's called We've Got Mail. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. 
Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter to the critically acclaimed network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're on the social medias, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can listen to <coughs> uh, this episode and all of our future episodes ad-free. You also get access to a lot of exclusive shows. Uh, that we've made at every single tier, but we currently have new shows uh, debuting that are with for uh, we're reviewing every single Star Trek ever. We're at, we're on season five of Next Generation, right? Season five, yeah. Yeah, so we're there's al- a, we're almost up to Star Trek six, the movie. Yeah. So yeah, so it's a huge back catalog if you sign up. You get just a lot of material to sift through. Uh, but we have commentary tracks as well. We have uh, complete. Uh, series that we've done. We did an entire series about every single episode of the Adam West Batman. Uh, we did an entire series about Firefly and a whole bunch of other things as well. Uh, big shout out to all of our patrons. Without you, we can't do this. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So uh, thank you everybody for listening once again. And never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>